0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from comedian Lee Camp, Counterspin, Mumi Abu-Jamal, The Onion Radio News, Jim Hightower, The Young Turks, and Sir Ken Robinson. Today's bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users is an animated video version of Sir Ken Robinson's speech, and today's episode does contain profanity.
1: I'm Lee Camp, and this is your moment of clarity liberal arts colleges shutter their doors every day now only eight percent of students get degrees in humanities whereas twenty two percent get business majors corporate for-profit universities burst up through our landscape like a heat rash basically caring about humanity is out caring about business is in you could take such thrilling courses as how to fuck the little guy how to screw the little guy or how to get the little guy to look the other way while you screw him you'll learn how to put profit before people How to do a profit-risk analysis in which you'll learn that it's okay to give 10,000 people leukemia as long as the settlement you owe them later is less than the profit you made by putting that nuclear waste under Bubba's good time swimming hole. Besides, the kids who grow webbing between their fingers will be able to swim even faster. They should be excited. And we regret to inform you that the courses on morality and ethics have been discontinued due to a lack of interest. This change is obviously, because of a shift in what we value in life. Nowadays, it's only money. But it's also due to a change in what we value in other people. It used to be that if someone said they were a teacher, people would respond, Wow, that's wonderful that you give of yourself to help kids learn. You're a better person than I. But now, someone says they're a teacher, and people go, Oh, did you fail out of law school? That's alright. Not everyone can do something that matters. Some of us have to read all those wrongs romance novels, right? And it's not the job that's changed. It's our fucking society that's changed. We've become greedy assholes. It's one thing to be greedy and only care about money. But it's a whole nother level of dickheadery to only value greed in others. Firefighters, for example. Firefighters used to be viewed as hardworking, selfless people who risked their lives to save a child stuck in a towering inferno or a hamster stuck in a storm drain. It was considered a noble thing to do with your life, you were doing it to help people, or because you liked watching shit burn. And sure, there was a resurgence for firefighter fame after 9-11. They made a brief MC Hammer too legit to quit comeback, but now it's faded. And the only time you hear someone mention a firefighter is if they're 27 and banging one, or they're a 45-year-old frumpy 5th grade teacher with a secret naked fireman calendar hidden in her desk that she sprays with cologne and smells whenever life gets too scary. Other than that, people don't give a shit about the courageous firefighters because they don't make enough money. In fact, the rich are trying to defund the fire departments because fire departments work pretty damn well and they're funded by taxpayer dollars. Which means they're socialist. (sighs) Quick! Picture your happy place. Hum a Ted Nugent song and chew on dollar bills until the demons be gone. Perhaps it's time we went back to valuing qualities in people other than money. Perhaps it's time that if your daughter or son is dating a firefighter or a teacher or a trapeze artist, you feel more pride than if they're dating a hedge fund manager. I mean manager.
2: Teachers wonder why the heapings of scorn is the headline of a front page New York Times March 3rd article. The article by Tripp Gabriel reports, quote, education experts say teachers have rarely been the targets of such scorn from politicians and voters, close quote. Politicians, sure, but what's the evidence that voters, in other words, the public, have been heaping scorn on teachers? Gabriel offers nothing to substantiate this claim unless you call references to online comments and placards of counter demonstrators and the assertion that New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's teacher bashing has made him a national star substantiation, which you really shouldn't. By the 14th paragraph, Gabriel suggests the public's anger may be receding. He cites polls showing majority support for bargaining rights as well as showing that people think public employees' compensation is either about right or too low as, quote, signs of a backlash in favor of teachers, close quote. But is it a backlash or the way people have felt about teachers all along? The piece isn't unsympathetic to teachers, but by buying into the notion that there is a wave of anti-teacher sentiment sweeping the public, it only emboldens teachers scapegoating politicians. And how about a little context? Journalists interested in scorn-heaping could look at the Gallup poll from late last year that asked how people viewed the honesty and ethical standards of various professions. Elementary school teachers' ethics were rated high or very high by 67% of respondents newspaper reporters by 22%.
3: On the front lines of class war, with the news of cheating on school testing affecting over a hundred Atlanta school teachers and administrators, we see the rotten fruit of No Child Left Behind and its twin race to the top, both programs designed not to educate but to privatize American education by punishing teachers for the sins of the entire society and ultimately breaking unions hassled, harried, pressured, and bullied by politicians and hock to their corporate contributors, threatened with firing in the midst of the worst recession in generations. Is there any wonder why some chose erasers over removal? The Bush-Clinton-Obama educational reform programs were designed not by educators, but by businessmen who, in an era of capitalist decline, see education as a field fit to be stripped. For the oldest of reasons, profit. Extensive testing has shown one thing for certain. Corporate charter schools have failed in their claimed task, educating children while succeeding elsewhere and siphoning billions of bucks from government budgets. As for teacher accountability, why stop at teachers? Why not make politicians accountable? And I don't mean only elections. Why not annual recalls of politicians at every level? The economy failed? Some politician lies and leads the nation into war? Recall him. Why not? It's certainly a democratic idea. The corporatization of education by business interests is furthered by politicians who may be repaying their funders, but who routinely betray their voters and their supposed constituencies. For public education for all of its shortcomings, and there are many, is the prime tool for socialization. And democratization. It is also, as Jonathan Kozel has noted, a system that is functionally an apartheid system, as segregated today as it was 50 years ago. It will take a true social movement to make it fulfill its promise education for all children. From Death Row, this is Mumia Ambu Jamal.
4: How can you say that you're true? Is better than ours Shoulder to shoulder Now brother We carry no arms And the blind man Sleeps in the doorway His home If only I had An enemy
5: bigger than My apathy I Could have won
6: Gave you all. That unbelievably cool group from high school is somehow still unbelievably cool. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Attendees at a 20-year reunion were stunned today when several men and women remembered by everyone as the coolest of the cool displayed no visible decline in overall coolness. Former classmate Carolyn Munoz described the group as every bit as cool as they were in high school, possibly more so, said Munoz. Yeah, well, the rest of us have been living...
7: You know, responsible lives. These guys are still sitting around being cool all day, getting high and wandering around. Hot topic.
6: Shortly after the event, the cool group fell victim to a highly contagious form of adult-onset acne and died at a nearby pancake house. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio.
7: Will Rogers said that when Congress comes into session, the public gets the same panicky feeling as when the baby gets hold of a hammer. Rogers' observation can also be applied to the mayhem that is broken out in various smash-happy state legislatures. All across the country, right-wing zealots are wielding their little ideological hammers to destroy common sense and wreck the common good. These anti-government extremists are going after everything from the basic rights of workers to our crucial environmental protections. Their most shameful assault, however, is on our public schools. They're not merely clobbering teachers and shattering education budgets. They're after the very idea of public education. A few years ago, Debbie Riddle, a boneheaded Texas legislator, asked, Where did this idea come from that everybody deserves free education? It comes from Moscow, from Russia. It comes straight out of the pit of hell, she sputtered. She was hooted down then, but this year, her Kafkaesque ideological extremism has moved from the legislative fringe to the center of the Republican majority's agenda. Using the huge budget deficit, which they created as their excuse, Texas GOP lawmakers and the GOP governor are cavalierly abrogating our state's historic constitutional commitment to providing, quote, an efficient system of public-free schools. Even as student enrollment is growing exponentially, these ideologues are whacking the state school budget by $4 billion. Worse, they're terminating the law that gives our public schools top budgetary priority based on how much we need to spend to educate our children. No more entitlement, they scream as stupidly as they can. This is Jim Hightower saying, unfortunately, Texas is not the only state putting budgetary ideology over school kids, undermining our entire society's future. As the old bumper sticker puts it, if you think education is expensive, try ignorance.
8: The superintendent of the Fresno County School District, and he is willing to take a $800,000 pay cut within three years, so he can save some of the programs that are happening within his school district. This is a really interesting story because he actually uh, decided to get fired from the school district and then rehired for only $31,000 a year
4: that that he did it that way so that he could then have the power to spend that money on the projects he thought was better for the kids right, right? he didn't want to just go into a general slush fund etc you got to understand something this is the greatest guy in the country he's right up there with a the guy who saved a 7 year old from getting kidnapped yes. okay who gives up 800,000 because they want the kids to have a better education that's unbelievable like in in the right world that's what all the superintendents should want You know they should all want the best for the kids and be willing to sacrifice for it because that's why they got into the profession in the first place. Mm -hmm. But in the real world, that's not how it works. And this guy gave up all that money and he says, "Look, we don't need the extra money. My wife and I have enough money to get by, and and I really want what's right for the kids. And I'm about to retire, and I just want to do things the right way." And he's like, "And I'm surprised it's even a news story. Are you kidding me?" You're like the only guy in the country doing something right. It's like the biggest news story that we have. Can you imagine bankers on Wall Street saying, Yeah, I gave up $800,000 because I didn't think it was the right thing to do to take it from the people whose homes were being foreclosed because we gave them the shady mortgages in the first place. I gave it back. The number of bankers doing that zero, less than zero, okay? And if you say hey they're fat kids, they're like, How dare you? You're so anti-banker, you're anti-capitalist, etc. Now you got a guy who actually gives a damn.
8: Right. Who I know. He cares about the it's...
4: kids. It's amazing. God bless your heart. I couldn't love you more.
8: I know, and it's really rare. He says he doesn't need to stockpile the money, which is admirable. I really like it. Now keep in mind, he he is well off, you know, he made so much so much money over the past uh you know, however long he was a superintendent. Keep in mind he that's eight hundred thousand dollars within the next three years. Divide that up. He was making a about thousand dollars uh, per year.
4: Right. Right. Now, look, you can say that's too much for a su- school superintendent. No, identity. I don't
8: actually. I want. I want to come back to that. I don't because he's in charge of so many schools within this district. He runs three hundred twenty-five schools and thirty-five school districts uh, with one hundred ninety-five thousand students.
4: Yeah, I just want to make a couple of things clear. First of all, he wasn't making that money throughout his career. He recently became school school superintendent. He was deputy before, et cetera, Mm -hmm. at at a lower rate. And so this is his big payoff. This is a big, big payday in a lot of ways and it's not like he was rich like his family was rich it's not like he was rich like he was a banker before whatever money he made he made working his way up and this is a guy's an amazing story he had polio when he was a kid and one leg was shorter than the other and he had to figure out how to shorten his his other leg and he sur- he got past that and he said it was the biggest blessing of my life cuz it led so many other people to help me oh come on <laughs> this guy's unbelievable right and recognizes that you can't do anything without the help of others. And he said given all the people that people helped me in my life to and he became a wrestling champion in high school after suffering through that disease and and having wearing a brace his whole life, etc., that he now says, "Look, I want to do the same help for others and I just don't need that much money, so I'm going to give it back so the kids could have better programs in, you know, kindergarten, etc." I'm declaring it. One of the top, at least three best guys in the country. Larry Powell, congratulations.
6: The school board votes to allow the teasing of an area 6th grader. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. In a surprise move, the Greenville School Board has allowed the verbal harassment of 6th grader Toby Aylesworth to continue unopposed. Board President Nancy Klein says she empathizes with Aylesworth, but also agrees that his classmates are correct in calling him a, quote, big, fat, fatty.
7: Sometimes
9: teasing and ridicule are... Are the only things that will get through to these kids.
6: Klein added that the board will reconsider its ruling if Aylesworth is certified by a group of his peers to be boogerless and cootie free. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. Online.
7: The CEO of the world's largest publisher of children's educational material says, the vast majority of our programs are not controversial, but once in a while there's a slip-up in editorial judgment. I'll say, like taking big bucks from Big Coal to produce a curriculum packet for fourth-grade teachers that was a shameless propaganda piece for, guess who, Big Coal. That slip-up by Scholastic, Inc. precipitated an avalanche of anger from parents, children's advocacy groups, and environmentalists. The $2 billion-a-year corporation was buried in bad publicity and stung with fundamental questions about the integrity of its classroom materials. It turns out that this was not Scholastic's first trip down the slippery slope of corporate-financed education. It has also taken cash to produce books and lesson plans that serve the self-interest of such brand-name outfits as Disney, Microsoft, Nestle, and Shell. Publishing the biased content of these funders matters, for Scholastic is able to get its materials into 90% of U.S. classrooms, which, of course, is why corporate giants want to buy in. Indeed, Scholastic brags that it reaches young minds with curriculum-connected programs that can influence behavior and affect, quote, brand awareness and consumer loyalty. Now, however, Scholastic's behavior is being influenced. The public's outcry forced it to terminate some of its industry puff pieces and announce a partial retreat on accepting corporate funds, while also setting up a quasi-independent review board to vet all materials produced in partnerships with industry. This is Jim Hightower saying, to be worthy of its name, Scholastic needs to sever all corporate connections which is why we the people must stay on their case. To keep up and speak up, go to commercialfreechildhood.org.
1: your moment of clarity. And I apologize, but today's topic is a little darker than usual. It's spelling. When did we as a nation just give up on spelling? I don't think I was at that meeting. Was there a meeting where everyone goes, you know what? Fuck this. We don't know whether the word misspelling has two S's or five, and we don't have time to care. We don't have time for spelling and grammar and reading and verifying spotty intelligence before bombing other countries. What do I look like, a fucking secretary to you? And I'm not saying I spell everything right. Sometimes when I've had a few drinks and the computer screens blurry when viewed through one bloodshot eye, I'll throw a couple of extra R's into the word slurring, sure, and the other... The other day, I spelled the activity repelling like it had to do with scaring people away rather than what it really has to do with immense wedgies from 1,000 feet up. But I'm not talking about drunk spelling or words we never use. I'm talking about the decision that 70% of our population has made that any word that even fucking sounds like your is spelled Y-O-U-R. Your dog is driving that car. Y-O-U-R. You're going to the swingers party? Y-O-U-R. I wonder what swingers parties were like in the days of your, Y-O-U-R you are what's all over my bedsheets urine y-o-u-r n and we fucking obliterated the words there and definitely definitely now has at least nine widely accepted spellings all of which seem to contain a wayward letter a and if you look closely at that letter a you can see that even it doesn't know what the fuck it's doing there it looks scared and confused like elizabeth hasselback on the view And here's my biggest problem with this. This is not the days of yore when in order to spell a word right you'd have to grab a big old dictionary and throw it at your slave to get his attention and tell him to ride his horse an hour to the town wordsmith who would consult several scholarly tomes before chiseling the correct spelling into a giant slab of granite that would be delivered back to you. Quite the contrary. There's a little red line under under almost every misspelled word we type screaming at us. It's going this word right here. It's fucked up! I, a computer f- far smarter than you, am almost certain that the word definitely does not have a silent G and an umlaut. Are we just that full of ourselves as a nation that we think the computer couldn't possibly know this shit better than we do? Or does everyone just think the bright red line is the internet's way of saying, Great job! I'm going to celebrate your excellent spelling with a flamboyant red boa! Hurrah! And it's one thing if you're misspelling words while sexting or tweeting, or sometimes the Esquire magazine just doesn't have enough big goofy W's to finish out your ransom note. I can sympathize with that, but when people are arguing politics or foreign policy, it kind of affects your fucking argument. Demanding abortion should be illegal should not be done while simultaneously demanding abortion should be spelled with an SH. Or maybe you're taking the pro-choice stance of, it's my word, I can decide what's inside of it. Other countries insist we're ignorant because we don't know other languages, and I can't argue because I can't speak any others, except, of course, for the language of love, which I'm fluent in. But that doesn't help much in Yugoslavia. The road signs are almost never translated into love. I'm just saying, if we're not going to speak other languages, perhaps we should try and speak our own. Go,
7: teeth and the curse for all in my mouth Only I don't know how They got out
5: here Turned me back into the bed I was only man I was happy
6: A spelling bee winner fails to spell his way out of a schoolyard beating. It's The Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Cornered during recess by bully Kevin Neustadt, eighth grader Eric Jensen's spelling skills provided little help to him in the face of physical confrontation. Jensen quickly discovered that his ability to spell such words as appendicular meant nothing to his violent classmate.
9: Yeah, I I don't know. I thought he might respect me for my uh, spelling abilities,
6: but
5: he just seems to get more upset.
6: Jensen hopes to ward off future beatings by mastering the art of Japanese calligraphy. Doyle <laughs> Redland for the Unleashed It's
3: New. against the law. It was against the law. I
5: wasn't my
8: Teens drop out of school each year and NPR is doing um, an interesting uh, look into uh, the reasons why and the impact it has on society. So I have a little snippet of an NPR video and then I'm going to give you some statistics that will blow your mind.
2: They're more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, live in poverty, go to jail, or never hold a permanent job. The unemployment rate for dropouts is nearly twice the rate for the rest of the workforce. The costs to society are staggering in lost wages, taxable income, health care, welfare, and incarceration. We spend at least $319 billion a year on dropouts.
8: That's an incredible number. Now, just to give you an idea of how many people drop out, um, the highest number of people who drop out uh, are Latinos. Mm -hmm. Okay, Uh, 41% of Latina women who, or Latina girls who drop out of school, uh, do so because they become pregnant. So that goes back to the whole conversation that we had about accessible contraception. Mm -hmm. Okay, they they need access to it. Um, The unemployment rate for people without a high school diploma is nearly twice that of the general population. If you don't have a high school diploma, you are much more likely to not find a job. Um, The overall, uh, over a lifetime, a high school dropout will earn $200,000. Dollars less than a high school graduate, and almost one million dollars less than a college graduate. So now, looking at the amount of money that high school dropouts make, only seven percent of dropouts, 25 and older, have ever made more than forty thousand dollars a year.
4: Stop and think about that for a second. If you drop out, there's a 93 percent chance that you're going to make less than forty thousand dollars your whole life. End of this. That's end of the conversation. You can't drop out. That's crazy. Now, here's the thing. As I look at this, I I gotta blame the parents. Okay? And you know, you can get mad about that, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and there's different situations, yada yada, yada. I understand that. And you know, uh do uh, families that are at lower income do they have more dropouts because some of the kids sometimes have to start working early? I know all that. Of course that's true, right? But Overall, if I'm a parent, knowing these—even if you don't know these statistics—you have a sense of it, right? There's no way I let my kid drop out. I mean, it'd have to be some sort of like uncontrollable kid, and what can you do? As as Ben says, sometimes you just get a bad seed, okay? But unless it's that, it's no way, no way, no way. Oh well, you know, I couldn't. No, I, I don't. There's no excuse. I'm sorry, there just isn't. I know you're working two jobs. I love you. I know it's hard, but you got to keep the kid in school. Otherwise, he's never going to make about 40,000. He's going to have no chance, no opportunity. You can't do that to the kid.
8: I understand what you're saying, Jake. And honestly, parenting is a huge factor, okay? Parenting is a huge factor. The effectiveness of the teacher, that's another huge factor. But putting or placing all the blame on parents is completely unfair okay because not all families are resilient a lot of families have to deal with a lot of crap throughout their lives okay look at all the working families that have to deal with all the BS that's going on in our political system that's working against them I okay. know. no
4: excuse no I'm not okay you can call it as unfair as you like and probably a lot of people if you will disagree are a single with
8: me. if you are a single parent okay who is who was a high school dropout yourself right and you're trying to make ends meet for your kids so you're gonna you-
4: condemn your kid to uh, being in the same exact situation as you are.
8: No, you don't condemn your kid to being in the same exact situation. If you are working several jobs just to make ends meet, just so you could put food on the table, how are you going to chase around your child, making sure that they're going to school every no, single you've day? No, you set
4: that expectation, and there is no ends or buts set it. about it. Look, here's the thing. I'm, I'm not. Saying it's easy, and I—if it was up to me, I'm a live man. I would help those people in a hundred different ways to give them a fair chance, not a handout, but to say, "Hey, look, if you do the right things, here are the opportunities will open up for you." Right. But at the same time, somebody at some point has to take personal responsibility and say, "I am not letting my kid drop out, no matter how hard it is." I'm not saying it isn't hard. And by the way, also recognize that you know there are a lot of folks who are not working hard and who don't give a damn and whose kids drop out okay there's that percentage of the population as well and look if i you know and the numbers are stunning the number uh, when you break it down by race it gets even more controversial okay but number of asians that drop out is like 10% white 17% blacks 41% latinos 47% i literally cannot believe that number 47% i can't believe it right and if I'm a Latino or I'm black, I or even if I'm white, if I'm anybody, but especially in those categories with the numbers being that high, I'd go on a warpath, man. I mean, you got to you got to rally your community and you got to say this can't stand. What are we doing? And gee, I wonder why Asians, you know, wind up with higher incomes. This is a story we got coming up later in the program. It's a story we've done before. It's cuz they went to school. So what are you doing letting your kids drop out? Uh, you, you're screwing them. Come on, wake up. This is crazy. No, we got to get beyond it. No. And if I you know, all right, look, I think one of the things that they should, if you're um, you know a successful uh, uh, a black person, a Latino, whatever in this country, I would also say white because Asians are doing so much better than everybody else, okay? And whites uh, have significant problems too. I think you have a certain responsibility to go make speeches at school saying, "Hey, look, here's your options. you drop out, you're never going to make over forty thousand dollars. You're screwed, okay? If you don't drop out, here are your opportunities here's your real chances. you got have a responsibility as a community to do better jr
10: that's the thing you if If we're talking about education and we're talking about people being responsible for what their kids are doing um they have sometimes it starts at a certain level so if they didn't get it why would they be in a position to say oh well you should get it too and then when they didn't have it in the first place yeah the education starts with somewhere someone's experience with having success with that starts in another place too so there's not just an enlightenment period where people say oh that's right
4: but, you, but, you, but 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 maybe that, if you
10: finish high school you'll get the statistic. They're not looking up these statistics. They're too oh, trying to try get a job. Of course. You're 100% a hundred percent right. A lot of people won't give them. Actually. No,
4: chair, I get it. You're hundred percent right about that, but that's why I talk about the speeches, and I use that only as uh as you know, a starting point. Just giving a speech at a school ain't gonna do it. But I'm talking about mentoring. I'm talking about going to the communities, whether it's the churches, et cetera, and saying, Hey, we gotta change uh Our perception of this, we've got to make sure we got to do everything humanly possible. Make sure these kids stay in school. It's that overall approach that the community needs to take. Now you can say, "Oh, it's easy for you to to say." I agree with you, but I'm saying I know it's hard. So let's do it together. Let's do it right. But just to say it's hard and not do it, and then let these kids drop out and condemn them to a life of, you know, uh, of being of no opportunity, is not the
10: right way to go. I agree. There's just stories we did we've done before. Where the lady was being responsible. Sometimes it is the school. I think many times it's the school and the teachers and the fact they don't want to give a shit about these kids. And remember the lady who was living with another friend and gave this address so that her kid can go to a decent school because she knows the power of education, or at least the the, the benefit of getting it in this country. And they arrest her ass and fine her and say, what are you doing? Stay in your place. Your kids don't long, Don't deserve to get educated.
4: Uh, you know how outraged you know? I was by that story. Yeah. But,
10: yeah, yeah, of course, at the same time, that's, that's what we exception. heard about. That's what we heard about. I'm, no, so I know, and I
4: know, happened. and it happens uh, you know, more often than we realize, etc. But you know that... That's not the primary reason why, you know, kids aren't in school. Come on, keep it real. All right, Jesus Guedoy, any word from the Latino community? Uh, we go to our Latino representative, uh, uh, two feet removed from me. Yes.
11: Well, it, I'm more on JR's side in the sense that it's not that easy, or like, like, like you're saying, the parents need to do that. Like for my parents, like for my personal experience, it was a sense of like. You finished high school, and that was great. Um, yeah, you had a better advantage than my mom had, but high school wasn't... Like, my mom wasn't expecting college out of me. I did it. She supported me that I decided to go and then pushed me to finish. But it wasn't expected. Expected was high school.
4: See, so, but that's what I'm saying. I love your mom, but we got to change that
11: attitude. No, totally. You know? but But, like... But like J.R. is saying, it's not like my mom knew the st- the statistics about if you don't go to college, you won't make this much. You know, so I don't think it's that easy. No, but
4: again, for the 18th time, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying I know how hard it is, but let's try Let's try to get beyond it. Let's try to do it. Agreed. I mean, like, you Agreed. know, for your kids, Jesus, if you have kids, you're going to expect college, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, and but there's even, no way you like, let them drop out of even, high school. Like,
11: my mom... Sometimes she'd tell me the, it just take a short vocational course after high school if you so you won't get tired of school you know so sometimes you know my mom didn't finish junior high so she's like oh I don't want him to miss an opportunity because he's already a citizen he was born here he he already has so much more than I did so you know like she'd tell me like go to those schools that Anna loves pay, for, pay profits. For, for profits for profits. <laughs> <But, yeah, so. laughs> But it's a different you know, it's a different
4: thing. I know, and but that's exactly what I'm saying. Last thing on this. Look, we gotta change the mindset, man. I mean, because look, we we're gonna do a story on Indians in just one second, but when you when Indians in this country, meaning South Asians or when Asians in this country or really it's a misnomer, what it is is immigrants, right? Uh, was incredibly successful Eastern European immigrants here, incredibly successful African immigrants here, and of course we're Turkish. I don't know where we are in the racial spectrum, but but uh, the immigrant mentality is, oh, we're going to Harvard. Okay, get out the way, yo, get out the way. We're going to Harvard. Okay, and when you have that mentality, you're so much more likely to succeed, so much more likely to make more money in the long run. I mean, some of the Tiger moms drive their kids crazy, but that's a whole different problem and a much smaller problem, if you ask me, than the opposite expectation. You gotta have high expectations.
5: Monday morning, wake up knowing that you gotta
9: go to school. Tell your mom what to expect to that off the blue. Do you wanna work in Devonette? Cause that's what they expect. Starting laundry
5: and Doris is your supervisor.
0: dollars A month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So, for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com.
1: I'm Lee Camp, and this is your moment of clarity. I was listening to a speech by Sir Kenneth Robinson in which he referenced a study done with kindergartners that showed that 98% of them scored in the genius level on divergent thinking, which is kind of like creativity. They were tested eight years later, and hardly any of them scored in the genius range. Basically, our schools beat the creativity out of us in an impressively efficient manner. If a person were tasked with devising a creativity a relation equation. They could hardly do better than the schools of the United States of America, with Carlos Mencia coming in at a close second. Our schools do not teach much more than rote memorization and sometimes hard work. If you have a photographic memory, then you are a straight-A student. Doesn't matter if you're more ethically bankrupt than Dick Cheney, more socially inept than Charles Manson, less creative than Snooky, and have less emotional intelligence than Charlie Sheen. You could still be the valedictorian. The closest our schools get to teaching anything about emotion is a Sylvia Plath poem, and the coach slapping your ass during a basketball game and leaving his hand there a little too long. Alright, a lot too long. The closest they get to helping you explore your senses is teaching you that if you close your eyes when you bite into a Salisbury steak, it almost tastes like something that came from an animal. Our schools turn the dumb kids into mindless workers who fear nothing more than breaking from the accepted path and turn the smart kids into corporate drones who fear nothing more than coming in second place and not grabbing up as much green paper as the next guy. If you took those kindergartners who were so good at thinking outside the box, who didn't just see a crayon as something to use to color inside the lines, but also as something to stick up their nose Who picked up a rock and pretended it was a magical dragon. Who didn't just use pipe cleaners to clean their pipes out, but also used them to stick up their noses. If you took those kids and fostered their minds in different ways, you would almost certainly have a different world. One with more artists than lawyers, more philosophers than corporate cunts, more mad inventors than marketers. And if nothing else, a world with sparkling clean noses. And And that sounds like a better world
12: to me. They would not listen they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen now for they could not love you But still your love was true And when no hope was left in sight on that starry starry night you took your life as lovers often do But I could have told you, Vincent This world was never meant for one as beautiful as you
2: Starry,
3: starry
13: night Every country on earth at the moment is reforming public education. There are two reasons for it. The first of them is economic. People are trying to work out how do we educate our children to take their place in the economies of the 21st century. How do we do that? Given that we can't anticipate what the economy will look like at the end of next week, as the recent turmoil is demonstrating. How do we do that? The second though is cultural. Every country on on earth is trying to figure out how do we Educate our children so they have a sense of cultural identity and so that we can pass on the cultural genes of our communities while being part of the process of globalization. How do you square that circle? The problem is they're trying to meet the future by doing what they did in the past. And on the way, they're alienating millions of kids who don't see any purpose in going to school. When we went to school, we were kept there with a story which is if you worked hard and did well, and got a college degree, you would have a job. Our kids don't believe that. And they're right not to, by the way. You're better having a degree than not, but it's not a guarantee anymore. And particularly not if the route to it marginalizes most of the things that you think are important about yourself. Some people say we have to raise standards if this is a breakthrough. You know, like, really, yes, we should. Why would you lower them? You know, I mean, I, I haven't come across an argument that persuades me of lowering them. But raising them, of course we should raise them. The problem is that the current system of education was designed and conceived and structured for a different age. It was conceived in the intellectual culture of the Enlightenment and in the economic circumstances of the Industrial Revolution. Before the middle of the 19th century, there were no systems of public education. Not really. I mean, you could get educated by Jesuits, you know, if if you had the money. But public education, paid for from taxation, compulsory to everybody and free at the point of delivery, that was a revolutionary idea. And many people objected to it. They said it's not possible for many street kids, working class children to benefit from public education. They're incapable of learning to read and write and why are we spending time on this? So there's also built into it a whole series of um, assumptions about social structure and capacity. It was driven by an economic imperative of the time but running right through it um, was an intellectual model of the mind, which was essentially the Enlightenment view of intelligence. That real intelligence consists in this capacity for a certain type of deductive reasoning and a knowledge of the classics originally, what we come to think of as academic ability. And this is deep in the gene pool of public education, that there are really two types of people academic and non-academic, smart people and non-smart people. And the consequence of that is that many brilliant people think they're not because they have been judged against this particular view of the mind. So we have a twin pillars, economic and intellectual. And my view is that this model has caused chaos in many people's lives. It's been great for some. There have been people who have benefited wonderfully from it, but most people have not. Instead, they suffer this. This is the modern epidemic, and it's as misplaced, and it's as fictitious. This is the plague of ADHD. Now, this is a map of the instance of ADHD in America, or prescriptions for ADHD. Don't mistake me here. I don't mean to say there is no such thing as attention deficit disorder. I'm not qualified to say if there is such a thing. I know that a great majority of psychologists and pediatricians think there is such a thing but it's still a matter of of debate. What I do know for a fact is it's not an epidemic. These kids are being medicated as routinely as we had our tonsils taken out, and on the same whimsical basis, and for the same reason, medical fashion. Our children are living in the most intensely stimulating period in the history of the earth. They're being besieged with information and calls for their attention from every platform. Computers, from iPhones, from advertising holdings, from hundreds of television channels. And we're penalizing them now for getting distracted. From what? You know, boring stuff. <laughs> At school, for the most part. It seems to me it's not a coincidence, totally, that the incidence of ADHD has risen in parallel with the growth of standardized testing. Now, these kids are being given Ritalin and Adderall and all manner of things often quite dangerous drugs to get them focused and calm them down. But according to this, attention deficit disorder increases as you travel east across the country. People start losing interest in Oklahoma. (laughs) They can hardly think straight in Arkansas, and by the time they get to Washington, they've lost it completely. And there are separate reasons for that, I believe. (laughs) It's a fictitious epidemic. If you think of it, the arts, and I don't say this exclusively the arts, I think it's also true of science and of maths, but let me, I say about the arts particularly because they are the victims of this mentality currently, particularly. The arts especially address the idea of aesthetic experience. An aesthetic experience is one in which your senses are operating at their peak. When you are present in the current moment, when you're resonating with the excitement of this thing that you're experiencing, when you are fully alive. An anesthetic is when you shut your senses off and deaden yourself to what's happening. And a lot of these drugs are that. We're getting our children through education by anesthetizing them. And I think we should be doing the exact opposite. We shouldn't be putting them asleep. We should be waking them up to what they have inside of themselves. But the model we have is this. It's, I believe we have a system of education that is modeled on the interests of industrialism and in the image of it. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, schools are still pretty much organized on factory lines, you know, ringing bells, separate facilities, uh, specialized into separate subjects. Um, we still educate children by batches. You know, We put them through the system by age group. Why do we do that? You know, why is there this assumption that the most important thing kids have in common is how old they are? You know, it's like the most important thing about them is their date of manufacture. You know what I mean? Well, I know kids who are much better than other kids at the same age in different disciplines. You know, or at different times of the day. Or better in smaller groups than in large groups. Or sometimes they want to be on their own. If you're interested in the model of learning, you don't start from this production line mentality. These are... It's essentially about conformity and increasingly it's about that as you look at the growth of standardized testing and standardized curricula. And it's about standardization. I believe we've got to go in the exact opposite direction. That's what I mean about changing the paradigm. There was a great study done recently of divergent thinking. Published a couple of years ago. Divergent thinking isn't the same thing as creativity. I define creativity as the, the process of having original ideas that have value. Divergent thinking isn't a synonym but it's a, an essential capacity for creativity. It's the ability to see lots of possible answers to a question, lots of possible ways of interpreting a question, uh, to think what Edward de Bono would probably call laterally, uh, to think not just in linear or convergent ways, uh, to see multiple answers, not one. So, I mean, there are tests for this. I mean, one kind of card example would be, people might be asked to say, how many uses can you think of for a paperclip? Well, those routine questions, most people might come up with 10 or 15. People who are good at this might come up with 200. And they do that by saying, well, could the paperclip be 200 foot tall and be made out of foam rubber? You know, like, does it have to be a paperclip as we know it, Jim, you know? Um, now they are tests for this, and they gave them to 1,500 people, this is in a book called Breakpoint and Beyond. And on the protocol of the test, if you scored above a certain level, you'd be considered to be a genius at divergent thinking. Okay. So, my question to you is, what percentage of the people tested, of the 1500, scored at genius level for divergent thinking? Now, you need to know one more thing about them. These were kindergarten children. So, what do you think? What percentage at genius level? 80. 80. Okay. 98%. Now, the thing about this was, it was a longitudinal study. So, they retested the same children five years later. Age of eight to ten, what do you think? Fifteen? They retested them again five years later, ages uh, 13 to 15. You can see a trend here, can't you? (laughs) Now this tells an interesting story because you could have imagined it going the other way, couldn't you? You start off not being very good, but you get better as you get older. But this shows two things. One is we all have this capacity. And two, it mostly deteriorates. Now, a lot of things have happened to these kids as they've grown up. A lot. But one of the most important things that happened to them, I'm convinced, is that by now they've become educated. You know, they've spent 10 years at school being told there's one answer, it's at the back. And don't look. And don't copy, because that's cheating. I mean, outside schools, that's called collaboration. You know, but (laughs) inside schools. Now, this isn't because teachers want it this way. It's just because it happens that way. Um, it's because it's in the gene pool of education. We have to think differently about human capacity. We have to get over this old conception of, of academic, non-academic, abstract, theoretical, vocational, uh, and see it for what it is, um, a myth. Uh, secondly, we have to recognize that most great learning happens in groups. That collaboration is the stuff of growth. If we atomise people and separate them and judge them separately, we form a kind of disjunction between them and their natural learning environment. And thirdly, it's crucially about the culture of our institutions, the habits of the institution and the habitats that they occupy.
12: Hi, Jay. This is Andrew, a listener from Brooklyn, and I'd like to do an activist call to action for the Tar Sands Action Campaign. Your listeners might also recall having heard about the protest that took place at the White House a few weeks ago, but just in case you didn't, uh, about 1,000 people were arrested at protesting the White House's decision to allow oil companies to build an oil pipeline that runs from Canada all the way to Texas. This pipeline, which is known as the Keystone XL Pipeline, would be built for the transportation of tar sands, which are a form of dirty oil that's three times as carbon-intensive in its refinement than the most common forms of fossil fuel extraction. Now, it would run across the United States, across some of our biggest freshwater aquifers, and scientist Bill McKibben has referred to it as basically a 1,700-foot fuse to the world's largest car bomb. Anyway, protesters were cited by a number of journalists as being forming the largest American civil disobedience act since 1977, and it was also referred to as the largest act of climate related civil disobedience in American history. So whether you didn't know about it or you wish you had known about it or you heard about it but you thought it was over. I've got some good news. It's not over. It has not lost its momentum and it's actually growing daily with new regional civil action popping up in places all over the country every day. So if you want to find out more about it or how you can get involved, you can visit tar sandsaction.org. That's tar sands like on the beach, action.org and hopefully together we can all encourage the Obama administration to make a real investment in our nation's future by making sure we still have a planet to live on. Other than that, I love the show, and keep it up. Bye.
9: Hi, James. My name is Alex. I'm calling from Redding, Pennsylvania. I just wanted to comment on your most recent show, the uh, September 20th show. There was a clip from Rachel Maddow where she was talking about inflation being low under Ben Bernanke. The only reason why inflation appears to be lower now is because they're constantly changing the way they calculate inflation. If you'd like to learn more about that, you can check out Shadow Government Statistics at shadowstats.com. If you calculate inflation the way it used to be in the 80s, inflation is actually running about 11% right now. And I think anyone who's recently been to the grocery store or the gas station would agree with that. So I encourage the listeners to uh, check out shadowstats.com and uh, see how inflation uh, really has been under Bernanke. Thank you. Hi, Jay. It's Keith in Chicago. Um, I'm just giving a, a call having to do with your 9-11 posting of which there's kind of like a snapshot of an adorable, cute, 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 through and through adorable little boy holding a sign that says, I am a Muslim. Please don't hate me. Um, and of course the show had to do with Islamophobia, which, which I get. Um, of course it's a disturbing photo because I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. It's one of an adorable, through and through little boy, so who could hate you? And then um, I'm also thinking, um, wait a minute, you're so young, it appears that you didn't write this poster yourself, someone else wrote it for you, so there's something kind of creepy about using a child in like a political ad, whatever. I mean, I guess the whole Islamophobia thing, but then I'm thinking, well, no child, to continue the thought, I'm thinking no child should be branded as Muslim or Jewish or a Christian or a Buddhist or Hindu or what have you because they're not old enough to know or understand or identify with whatever faith, articles of faith is calling their name or or not, in particular when well, I think organized religion is just loaded with so much superstition and fiction and sexism and homophobia and it's all about control anyway, to have a child in that. Anyway, it's a creepy and disturbing um, picture and I just thought maybe it was through through appropriate for the show come to think of it anyway love your show hope you're doing okay take care bye
0: thanks for listening everyone and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line if you would like to leave a comment question or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show the number to dial is 206-202-3410 so, I'm suspecting that today's commentary will be the most controversial thing I have ever and may ever say because I'm going to uh, defend against several other uh, progressive commentators. I'm going to defend Pat Robertson. So I won't call out the other commentators by name, but I've heard the clip I'm about to play for you in in uh, various degrees of editing a minimum of three times. and. I think that everyone who has commented on it, uh, who I've heard, is completely wrong. And so uh, let's take a listen to it, and I'll come back afterwards.
8: Well, we have your questions from our chat room, and we'd like to take some time to address them now. Pat, this is Andreas, who says, I have a friend whose wife suffers from Alzheimer's. She doesn't even recognize him anymore, and as you can imagine, the marriage has been rough. My friend has gotten bitter at God for allowing his wife to be in that condition and now he started seeing another woman. He says that he should be allowed to see other people because his wife, as he knows her, is gone. I'm not quite sure what to tell him. Please help.
5: Oh, that is a terribly hard thing. It is... I I hate Alzheimer's. It is one of the most awful things because here's the loved one. This is the woman or man that you have loved for 20, 30, 40 years and suddenly that person is gone. They're gone they are gone so what he says basically is correct but i I know it sounds cruel but he's he if he's going to do something he should divorce her and start all over again but uh, you know, to make sure she has custodial care and somebody looking after her. But isn't
9: that the vow that we take when we marry someone? That it's yeah, for better, well, for worse, for I'm, richer, I for poorer. I know poor,
5: if if you respect that vow, but you say, "Death do us part." This is the kind of death. So that's what he's saying is that she's like. Hmm. But <clears throat> this is an ethical question that is beyond my ken to 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 tell you. But. I certainly wouldn't put a guilt trip on you if you decided that you know you had to have companionship. You're lonely and you're asking for some companionship as opposed to. But what a grief! I know one man who went to see his wife every single day, and she didn't recognize him one single day, and she would complain that he never came to see her. And I mean, it was just you know, it's really hurtful because they say crazy things. Yeah. And then, well, well, she things. finally she finally died. Yeah. I don't know what he's done, but nevertheless, it's uh, it is a terribly difficult thing for somebody, and I I I can't fault them for wanting some kind of uh, uh, companionship. And if he says, in the sense she is gone, he's right. It's like it's like a walking death. So, but. Yeah. Uh, Get some ethicist besides me to give you the answer because I, I recognize the dilemma, and the last thing I'd do is condemn you for taking that kind of action. So there you go. That is the full unedited video
0: of that comment. Uh, you know I, I took it directly from the Christian Broadcasting Network's YouTube page. I didn't edit it myself, so if anyone did, it was the original producers, but that's that's how it came to me from from them directly. and so first of all, What I think is interesting to know is that this video became controversial and started being talked about not because liberals attacked him, but because his own viewers, Pat Robertson's viewers, his his hardcore Christian, um, usually very right-wing viewers attacked him on biblical terms. You know, they, they were saying that he was biblically wrong to say that it was okay to get a divorce in this circumstance. And and then the, the, the other people who were defending him were saying things like, well, he may be misguided on this one point, but he is an anointed man. He's anointed by God, so let's give him a break on this one. You know, it was like it was an absurd conversation that was happening to begin with. And so when it got picked up by the liberals, my sense was it's just like it was like a Pavlovian response for them to oh a controversial Pat Robertson video let's play that on our show and use it as as an opportunity to talk shit about Pat Robertson. So like I said, I heard this on on you know three other shows at least like two and a half of them use this as an example to to uh, really rip into Robertson uh, pretty fiercely and believe me like. He's said so many things in the past that are so atrocious he deserves to be highly scrutinized and, and you know, ripped apart when he says those terrible things. But, um, but to me, this just wasn't one of those situations, and I didn't see the point in anyone talking about it really at all. And so what, what they were going after him for was two things, uh, hypocrisy and heartlessness. And the hypocrisy was, I guess, he's probably made comments saying, you know, against divorce in the past. And now he's saying it is okay to be divorced. And so these liberals were like, oh, so it's okay to just go and divorce someone just because they're sick. Like, how heartless of you. The only way I can even understand what you're saying about that is if you, well, if you have no understanding of what Alzheimer's is, and if you would dare to... Judge someone in that situation, and for for liberals to put them in the in, put themselves in the position of judging a, a you know a an able-minded person married to a victim of Alzheimer's disease is shocking to me. That these people who I listen to regularly, I know and respect them, and and uh, you know agree with almost everything they say, for them to put themselves in the position of saying, I know what the right moral thing to do is in that situation. If your spouse has Alzheimer's disease, I'm gonna judge whether or not it's okay for you to divorce them or not. And to me, I can't even imagine trying to put myself in that position. Like, if you're in that position and you choose to uh, stay with that person and you say, nope, like, I'm in it for the long haul. I want to to care for this person for the rest of my life. And, you know, I promised I would, or you know, she she he or she needs my help and I'm I'm here to to provide that, you know, man, I love you for that. But on the flip side, if you say, hey, like I I can't hack it. Like I gotta go. This this is so hard. I can't, I can't manage it. I need companionship. I need, you know, love from someone else. I need to go and and date. And in order to do that and feel good about it, I need to get a divorce. Like man, I'm gonna be the last person on the planet to judge you for that. And so that's essentially exactly Robertson's point. And these liberals came along and were condemning him for his statements, (laughs) saying basically he was like, look, I can't judge. I'm not going to judge you on that. And liberals came along and judged him for being heartless. And I, I'm like, I was baffled by it. So, you know, the whole point of me saying what I'm saying is not to, you know, congratulate Pat Robertson because I mean he's a contemptible guy, <laughs> who who I disagree with on I'm sure almost every point that can possibly be made, uh, you know, politically. But but really is is to to call attention to this idea of like when when there, are, uh, you know, horrible people who say horrible things all the time. You still need to actually pay attention to each individual thing they say and if they say something that's not horrible, then you should not uh, yell at them for it. That's that's just my thought on it. And and so uh, regardless of where you're coming from and how you comment on politics, like just don't don't be a knee jerk. Don't reflexively oppose someone based on who they are and don't reflexively support someone based on who they are. Take each individual statement or, you know, policy platform, or whatever it is, take it one by one by one and judge each of them individually. It just so happens in this case, even though I don't agree with him on anything else, I think Pat Robertson was right. So that's going to be it for today. I'm going to thank a couple of members before I go. Jeff T. signed up for a socialist membership, paid for a full year in advance back on March 8th. And David D. signed up uh, also for a socialist uh, membership, but paid uh, by the month and started back in February. Uh, February, February 12th, and has stuck with the show since then. So huge thanks to David and Jeff and all the members and donors who helped keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, including sharing individual clips uh, of the show. You know, Take whatever your favorite part was and share it on your social networks or by email or whatever, including the commentary you just heard. I will post that individually on YouTube as well. You can stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, as well as donating your Facebook and Twitter accounts. Details on that are uh, on the website, of course. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always found on the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com
5: black and white Cause you took apart a picture That wasn't right
12: pitch burning On a shining sheet The only maker That you want to meet A dying man In a living room Who shadow bases The floor Who'll take you out